Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Ian Vasquez. I direct the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. China in the last three decades has been one of the great success stories in terms of economic progress. In its scale and in its speed, it has really uh, been unprecedented in world history in terms of poverty reduction. During the last several decades, it has lifted hundreds of millions of people out of destitution. Yet despite a no notable increase in freedom, especially in economic freedom in, in China, it still remains a largely uh, unfree country and certainly has a long way to go in terms of its uh, transformation into a modern economy. Indeed, China remains a largely rural country. It is well recognized, including by many inside uh, the government, that if it wishes to sustain high growth rates, it needs to continue down its uh, path of, of reform. Uh, nowhere is that more obvious and perhaps uh, more urgent than in the area of land rights uh, and uh, farmers' uh, rights. China is vastly richer than before, yet the rural sector is dragging far behind the urban sector as this uh, large and growing uh, Income, income gap between the two sectors uh, evidences. According to our speakers today, the principal cause of that uh, gap is the relatively slow growth rate of farmers' incomes. Uh, in, the, in the relatively slow growth rate of farmers' incomes is the lack of secure property rights of China's 800 million rural residents. That view is consistent with another study by Chinese uh, scholars that looked at the level of economic freedom uh, within China and found that the rural and southern uh, provinces uh, which are experiencing uh, prosperity and high growth are the, the more free uh, provinces, whereas the many interior provinces are highly repressed economies. The lack of secure land rights uh, is thus the source of extensive uh, corruption among government uh, officials at the local level and social unrest uh, throughout the, the country. Thus establishing secure uh, property rights and tenure to land has, been, has, become, a criti has become critical for economic uh, progress and social stability. China's success, of course, will depend on, on how the Chinese authorities address this issue and uh, to what extent they're able to protect farmers' uh, rights. And I'm very pleased to have with us today uh, some of the world's leading experts on, on Chinese uh, land reform and on the degree to which uh, the Chinese government is succeeding or failing in this effort. Roy Prosterman and Kellyanne Tsu from Landessa have been involved in conducting a series of, of uh, large-scale surveys in the rural areas of, of China over the past several years that evaluate the progress in securing uh, farmers' uh, property rights. And today they're going to be presenting uh, the findings of their latest uh, recent survey on this issue, which will show that China is very much at a, at a crossroads. Needless to say, China's success is important not only to the 1.3 billion people who live there, but because of its large weight in the world economy to the rest of us as well. So let me introduce uh, Roy uh, Prosterman, who will be speaking first. He is the founder and chairman emeritus of Landessa, which originally began as the Rural Development Institute and uh, recently changed it, it, its name. 
He's a, a professor emeritus of law at the University of Washington, a pioneering social entrepreneur, an expert on land reform and rural development. He has provided over uh, 40 years of research, policy advice, technical assistance, teaching, and public education and international development uh, law to more than 45 countries. So help me welcome Roy Pro Prosterman. I'll probably use this one. Okay. Uh, well, thank you for being here on this uh, beautiful sunny day. Thank you, Ian, for inviting us to speak. Uh, looking at it at the, in the broadest perspective, there are over 1.3 billion, actually closer to 1.4 billion people in the developing countries uh, who live on a dollar and a quarter a day or less, the vast majority of those people are rural. And the best indicator of rural poverty is lack of land, either lack of access completely, uh, as in agricultural laborers, or lack of secure rights, as in tenant farmers, uh, or in the case of China, uh, the lack of secure rights to land that people are on, they're cultivating, but uh, a majority of them still lack security for reasons that we will see. Uh, looking at rural China today in terms of the big picture, uh, one key factor, as Ian noted, is the worsening urban-rural disparity. Uh, nearly 800 million of China's 1.3 billion plus still live in the countryside. That's about 200 million households. It's about one out of every four farming families on our planet. Uh, their average per capita income is only about $800. The ratio of, of urban to rural per capita income uh, is, is skewed more than 3 to 1. 3.23 to 1 is the figure in 2010. Interestingly, and we may have a chance to discuss this, 2010 was the first year in more than two decades that the gap slightly narrowed. In 2009, it was 3.33. Uh, to one. But uh, if you look at other urban social benefits in education and health care and pensions and so on, the real ratio is probably something like five to one to the disadvantage of the rural dwellers. Uh, and as of 2005, that's uh, when the World Bank did a large comparative study, over 200 million people in China still lived under the dollar and a quarter a day poverty line. Uh, it was fairly striking given all the publicity and all the media attention to the growth in China, the prosperity in China, that 200 million people are still under 
a dollar and a quarter a day, and the vast majority of those people are rural. That chart uh, shows it uh, in, uh, in color. Uh, actually, if you, it, interestingly, if you traced it back even further, there was a period of time when it had narrowed considerably. Right after the revolution in 49, uh, mainland China gave full private ownership from 49 to 56 uh, to rural families. Uh, the program rather similar to what was very successfully being carried out around the same period of time in Japan, Taiwan, and, uh, and South Korea. During the seven years they had full private ownership, uh, rural incomes increased by uh, 85%. Uh, rural grain production increased by 70%. Uh, orders of increase, which if they could be repeated today, could indeed very significantly narrow that urban-rural gap. And by the way, it's not only a gap in income. Uh, the rural population also lags very badly in consumption, where the ratio is about three to one in favor of their urban uh, cousins uh, in per capita consumption. Life expectancy, which is about a dozen years longer in the cities, under five mortality rates, which are three times to three and a half times as high in the countryside. Education, it's orders of magnitude less likely that a bright uh, rural girl or boy will get to college as their urban cousins. Um, today, in, in terms again of the big picture in today's rural China, uh, there's a rapid urbanization process going on, uh, which has had uh, a negative uh, impact in terms of large amounts of farmland being converted to, to urban or commercial purposes, usually without adequate compensation, threatening farmers' livelihoods and comprising, uh, compromising the food security of, of the country. Uh, a very large number of uh, adult farmers, uh, almost uh, uh, a quarter of a billion of them, are now migrant workers in cities uh, who have largely left farming, although not entirely. Uh, and this has tempted local officials to take away their land rights. Uh, an interesting uh, chart that shows the population density, uh, and you may want to keep this visually somewhat in mind when you see the later chart of where we've carried out our 17 province uh, survey. Uh, the legal regime on rural land rights is one in which uh, all rural land is, is presently still owned technically by the collectives, uh, but over time the law has steadily uh, chipped away at the breadth of collective ownership to give more rights to farmers who have uh, essentially use of fructuary rights, uh, now a form of property rights under the 2007 uh, property law. Uh, Importantly, a recent law does clarify 
that collective ownership is ownership by all members of the community. It's not ownership by some uh, odd thing called the collective, which is separate from the people who comprise the community. And, and the property law makes clear that the whole community gets a voice, in fact, gets the voice in terms of any significant dispositions or changes of property rights. But local officials still, in practice, uh, in illegal practice, still possess great power uh, on the land issue. Uh, individual farm households have use rights, uh, which are pretty broad. I mean, the, the land use rights are transactable. Uh, they're inheritable. Uh, you can lease them, you can assign them in their entirety. Uh, the term of the use rights for arable land is now and has been under the law since 1998, uh, a 30-year term, and indeed a 30-year term which, although rather vaguely stated under the property law, is extendable at the end of the 30 years. Those rights are supposed to be documented in both contracts and certificates. And <clears throat> we'll say a little more in a moment about the actual availability and quality of documentation. <clears throat> the biggest problem with Chinese farmers' land rights has been and remains uh, insecurity. The laws and policies on the books are in pretty good shape although there are two big holes. One is that they're very inadequate on the subject of compulsory takings, eminent domain, we might say, uh, for non-agricultural uh, uses of that land. And there's also a, a near vacuum as to farmers' rights, rather paradoxically, because you think, think that would be where the strongest and clearest rights would be stated. Uh, but in fact, farmers have only very ambiguous rights to their so-called foundation plot, the residential land on which they put uh, their house. And there are increasing abuses uh, in that area. Um, a major shortcoming is implementation. They may have good laws and policies on the books, but there's often a considerable failure uh, of implementation, and there's a lack, uh, not surprisingly, of supporting institutions. Uh, <clears throat> broadly, the rule of law, the court system has been quite inadequate in support and defense of farmers' land rights. The documentation has been inadequate. Uh, and grassroots awareness, and people have to know about legal rights for those rights to be truly Effective. There are some areas where people are they're aware very generally that they have 30-year rights, uh, but there are many aspects of their rights that they're not aware of. In 2010, we did a survey, the most recent of our series of surveys on farmers' rural land rights and their implementation. Uh, close to 1,600 households in terms of the valid interviews. Uh, prior surveys had been done in 99 and 2001, 2005, and 2008. 
you see that pattern of provinces, it's pretty well where the population density is. Those 17 provinces where we carried out the survey uh, have 83% of China's rural population. Uh, the size of the survey should yield results that are accurate at a level of about plus or minus 2.3%, as is said at the 95% confidence level for the entirety of those 17 provinces. A survey carried out by Landessa, formerly the Rural Development Institute, uh, with its partners, China Renmin University and Michigan State University. The next couple of slides, by the way, show some of the uh, survey uh, experiences. That, that first one was a farmer who was repairing his roof when a uh, surveyor came to call and they carried out the survey while he was standing uh, on his roof. Uh, and of course, uh, efforts were made to make sure that women were adequately represented in the survey. Uh, the first key finding of the survey, and then I'll pass the baton to my uh, Landessa colleague, uh, Kalyang Zhu. Uh, the first key finding was on the issue of documentation. Uh, it's now 12 years since the 1998 land management law provided for the issuance of documents uh, reflecting farmers' 30-year rights, but still 37% of farm households have not been issued the certificate that they're supposed to get. Nearly half, 47%, haven't been issued contracts. Almost three households out of 10 have been issued neither of those two documents. And the possession of the documents is very important, as we, we shall see. Uh, of the issued land rights documents, uh, many have uh, qualitative problems. Uh, only 17% of issued contracts and 38% of issued certificates can be considered strictly law compliant. For example, many, many documents lack any adequate description of the land which is their subject. Uh, another big problem is that wives' names are generally missing. They're not found in 84% of the contracts. They're not found in 69%. Uh, of the certificates. So I could turn some of these figures around in terms of glass half full and glass half empty, but clearly there's a, a lot of problem uh, remaining in terms of, uh, there's a grave problem remaining in terms of the half empty issue. Uh, and I will uh, turn it over to Kellyanne to pursue. Let me just uh, introduce him. <clears throat> Kellyanne Su is an attorney who works in the, in the China team at Landessa. He was born and raised in the countryside of southern China. Uh, he has intimate knowledge of the country's rural society and rural, rural land issues. He's conducted rural field work, prepared research and policy memos, drafted laws and regulations, and has designed programs and solutions for the land reforms in China and in other East Asian countries. Thank you, Yin. Well, why do we care about uh, land documents? It is a great way of confirming and assuring uh, land rights. 
With the increased security, we can see a lot of uh, beneficial uh, results, including mid to long-term investments in land. Suppose if you buy an own a house in the United States, then you will spend money in uh, remodeling or fixing it up. You know that the investments you make would be somehow recovered in the future one way or another because you have that security of rights attached to the land or the house or the improvements. The same logic applies to the Chinese farmers. If they have that secure rights, they would tend to or more likely to make those mid to long term investments uh, that is very important to them to increase productivity, to stimulate income growth, as well as uh, create uh, land wealth. Our survey finds basically uh, a growing a number of farmers have making that, those mid to long term investments. 24% have made those, uh, one of those six specific types, uh, including orchards, uh, greenhouses, pig farms, um, fish ponds, and so forth. In 2009, those investments actually generated substantial income for Chinese farmers. The average gross income for the investing farmer is about $2,750. And if you accumulate all the investment together, the total number would be about $60 billion. That's a huge number, representing over 12% of the total rural income in that year. The most interesting piece of the survey finding, I think, is in this slide. It's probably the correlation between land documents and investments. If you have a, at least a one line document, a contract or a certificate, that means you're probably 76% more likely to make one of those mid to long term investments than those who have not been issued any land document. The quality of the land documents also matters. If you have at least one of those strictly law compliant certificate, you are 93% more likely to make those investments than those non-compliant certificate. So that probably tells the importance of land documents to the Chinese farmers. Another important topic here is whether or not farmers have engaged in transactions of land rights. Our survey basically finds an emerging land transfer market in rural China. Basically, one out of eight farmers over the past three years have engaged in what we call market transfers of land rights. Market transfers we define as there is at least some exchange of considerations, especially rent. Uh, because the forms of transactions we're talking about here are mostly leases. For those market transfers, the average cash rent in the 2010 is $232 per acre, compared to 196 in 2008. And if we compare the historical data, there is a, basically a general upward growth in terms of the rent level. If we capitalize that rental income at 5%, which is a reasonable return, and after calculation, there is an emerging land value around 5,200 US dollars per acre. That's for agricultural purposes only, of course. And then if we times the 300 million acres of arable land in China, then we got a total of about $1.5 trillion of land wealth. That's a big number. But of course, that bulk of that $1.5 trillion assets 
is still um, debt capital. Uh, that means because of the insecurity of land rights, but also because of legal restrictions, farmers cannot fully cash in the land rights and cash in capitalize the debt capital. Now we turn to a more um, serious or negative finding in China that has caused a lot of uh, problems in the social instability as well as uh, negative media attention. Uh, that's compulsory land takings. Uh, or eminent domain as we know it in the United States. Uh, as China grows so fast, we just noticed the fast urbanization process that requires a lot of agricultural land to be converted to commercial, urban, or industrial purposes. And that involves the uh, compulsory land takings by the government. 37% villages have experienced at least one compulsory land takings since the mid to late 90s when the 30-year rights were first introduced. And then the 60% of report takings, farmers were not satisfied for two main reasons. One is low compensation. The other is unfair process. The median amount of the compensation received by the farmers is about 10,000 per acre. Typically, the number looks a little bit reasonable, but when you look at how much the government sells the land to the developers, then you see the huge profit margin. That $10,000 typically is one-fifteenth of the price at which the government sells to the developer. So there is a huge incentive for local authorities to keep converting and acquiring farmers' land and sell to developers. And in 29% of all cases, farmers were not even notified in advance. And in 58% of cases, farmers were not consulted about what should be the proper amount of compensation. As we know, many people have read newspapers and checked the internet. That's actually one of the single greatest causes for rural unrest and protest in, in China recently. A similar negative finding is relates to corporate leasing and farming. Uh, just like in many other countries, China has recently experienced a growing interest in, by the private sector in agricultural land. And this actually reflects what we have found in the last year's survey. 24% of villages have recently seen leasing of large amounts of farmland to wealthy and well-connected developers and companies. And their average land size holding is about 100 times of uh, average farmer's land holding. And there are two problems. One is voluntariness. 45% of those arrangements are done because of pressure or mandates come from the local officials. And then the second problem is illegal land conversion. Because in China, if you want to, well, the only legal way to change the nature of land use type from agricultural land to non-agriculture is through the compulsory land acquisition I just mentioned by the government. If a company just leases land directly from farmers or the villages, the land should stay agricultural. But in fact, we found that uh, more than one third of the big holders are using at least some of the land for illegal purposes, building factories or urban apartments and so on. So after all the problems I just mentioned, we have um, basically come into, for this presentation, at least six major suggested solutions where areas could be improved 
Some of them relates to legal and policy changes, and some of them are about institutional reforms. I'm going to go very quickly here on six of the uh, recommendations. The first one relates to land documents, issuing that to all the farm families, including women's name fully recorded. And the second one is to improve the law on compulsory land takings, to ensure the compensation standards, to ensure the procedural fairness and transparency are, are in place. Uh, there is actually a new, uh, China has recently adopted a urban takings regulation in the, about two months ago that involves several and positive changes. So those positive changes can and should be reflected in the uh, land takings law uh, that is currently on the legislative agenda. The third one is considering some restrictions on corporate land holding to ensure uh, at least full voluntariness to ensure clear penalties for illegal uh, land conversion. And then we have to also solve the legal uncertainty about farmers' land rights that is currently for 30 years, and that 30 is already halfway gone. So it would help greatly by extending the term explicitly um, to renew it without charge for a similar or even longer term. And then we have to protect the land rights of the migrant, far, uh, migrant workers or urbanized farmers. If they choose to go to the city or work in the city, their land rights should not be jeopardized. And the final one is to improve and strengthen the enforcement mechanism, includes publicity, legal aid, and court system. And this picture I'm showing here is one of our legal aid center in uh, Guangxi in southern China. One of the volunteer law students is basically uh, distributing legal pamphlets and answering questions in the local market. So why should you care? Roy and I just spent about over 20 minutes talking about Chinese farmers' land rights. Well, the implications are enormous, as mentioned by uh, also Ian at the very beginning. Now, in and outside China, if 800 million Chinese farmers have secure land rights, we could see amazing amount of downstream benefits. And the first one would be, as I mentioned, long-term investments in land that greatly increase productivity and higher income. And second one that is relevant and, and to many people in and outside China is broad-based property rights can lead to wealth creation, social equity, civic participation, and rule of law. In another word, secure long-term and equitable land rights could lead to positive social and even political changes at the grassroots level in China. And the final benefits would be better and more responsible environmental uh, stewardship in China. So that's for China. But what's about for the world in its entirety, given Chinese farmers given that full security in their land rights. My favorite story is about General Motors. General Motors in 2010 sold 2.2 million cars in the United States. Do you know how many new cars they sold in China in 2010? 2.4 million cars. The Chinese are buying more General Motors cars than Americans do. So the, what are, the question is, who are those Chinese people buying all the Buicks? I'm going to bring back this income disparity chart here. It's all the urban people represented in the blue line that buy all the Buicks. And the growth story of General Motors is not unique in China at all. All the multinational companies, Microsoft, Boeing, Starbucks, 
have all enjoyed fast consumption growth in China in recent decades. But one thing I'm sure is there are not many Chinese farmers represented by the red line are driving Buicks or drinking Starbucks coffee. So if we can close that gap, the income gap, bring the current rural income level that is only $800 a year now to the current urban level, and then times 800 million rural people, what kind of consumption power would that be? So with that, I'm going to close my presentation today. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, uh, Kellyanne. We now uh, will hear from Xiaobo Tsang, who is a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute. He has published widely in the fields of economic growth, income distribution, public investment, and rural industrialization in China and in other developing countries. He is the co-editor of uh, the Chinese Economic Review and has been the past president of the Chinese Economist Society. Please help me welcome Dr. Tsang. Okay, thank you, uh, Ian, for inviting me here to discuss Landis's uh, great report on China's land rise. And this is great work. Um, as I said uh, clearly in the presentation, land is the most important asset for farmers. Uh, China's food security is the worst food security. And in the future, in like 2030, 2040, whether China can feed itself is still a big uh, question mark. So all this depends whether China will have a well-functioning land market. However, China is very large, diverse, and complicated. For outsiders, we don't know little about how China's land rights have evolved over time and across space. And the land has made huge contribution uh, in serving uh, more than 1,000 households over six waves. And this uh, provides rich information on China's land markets, land rights, etc., And this few in a large knowledge gap because the official statistics doesn't cover this at all. So from this alone, I think this very valuable work is landmark work. I applaud their uh, great initiative and the contribution. So I thought the impact would be greater if you can share the data with the general public and let more people analyze the data. From your presentation, I heard you, you made a lot of claims based just on one year's, the, most, uh, the latest round of survey. You haven't compared with the first uh, four rounds. So if you put them together, I think you can uh, make a stronger case. Um, but right now, you look at the numbers, a lot of more like half bottle of water, depend how you see the issue. Is 20% good or bad? You need to have a benchmark compared with other countries or compared with history the uh, previous record, and then you can make uh, uh, an argument. But right now, if you just rely on one year's data, a lot of its correlations, also your, the views, based a lot on your subjective judgment. So I think in the future, you can um, enrich your studies by working with maybe economists, 
by sharing the data with the public. And a lot of people will pay attention to right, right issues in China. So here, I'm a discussant. I want to play devil to offer more critical comments. Uh, in the end, uh, Kalyan lists six recommendations. But I would be more cautious in making any of these kind of uh, policy recommendations. If you look at the Chinese reform, most of the successful reforms originate from indigenous uh, innovations. Many of them are rather uh, heterodox. For example, the rural responsibility system started from one village in Anhui province. And then the center found out, tried a little bit of experiment in very remote areas in Guizhou. After show it, it worked. And, and then it scaled up nationwide. Similar for the special economic zone, in the early 80s, when we talk about capitalism, we treat it most like, uh, I think we call it uh, like a flood or tiger in Chinese, Hong Shui Meng Shou. People are afraid of the capitalism because this kind of ideology uh, concern. In order to show that capitalists work, the central government first set up special economic zone in Shenzhen, close to Hong Kong, and tried to make some experiment. After a few years, showing the work, and then set up 12 more uh, uh, special economic zones along the coast, and recently expanded that even to the inland, to Chongqing and Tianjin and other uh, cities. So this all offer a gradual approach. Many of the measures were not on the textbook, standard textbook. Similar for the look at the dual uh, track press reform. At that time, there was a series of big bond. They said, in order to uh, speed up the re, uh, transition from the planned economy to market economy, you need to liberalize the price you, as soon as possible. The argument is that you think about it's more like two type of traffic uh, uh, system. In the US, people travel, travel on the right-hand side of the road. In UK, people travel on the left-hand side of the road. In order to make transition, you, don't, you cannot you need to change immediately. Otherwise, cause other confusion. Some people travel that direction, another people that direction. So there's their argument. But China adopts a different way. They adopt dual track system. First, uh, open the town village enterprises. And these uh, firms could get the raw materials at the market price from state-owned enterprises who uh, which was subject to the, uh, the quarters and the plant price. If there are any extra, they sell at the margin at the market price. This provides the opportunity to, to discover the price and also provide the opportunity for entrepreneurs to learn how market works. So this always a gradual approach, the dual track system. You see this, you cannot find in any standard uh, economics textbooks. So I want to offer a few uh, stories related to land, uh, land rights also give the similar uh, uh, insight. For example, the first example I would talk about is uh, land development rights transfers. Kerlian uh, has talked about in China, the central government has strong control on the uh, land conversion uh, quarters. So they give a certain quarter to different locations, different county. Each county has a land administration bureau. So they assign a certain uh, amount of quarter uh, so they can they can only allow to convert agriculture land to industry land or commercial uh, uh, land use within that culture. But we know China development is very uneven. The coast area grows much faster than the inland. 
if you go to Wenzhou, every entrepreneur is complaining they run out of land. They don't have uh, space to expand their uh, industrial production. They want to get more, more land, but the land price in Wenzhou is more than 1 million yuan per acre per move. But if you go to inland, they have a lot of unused quarters. Uh, you can see the sh shadow price of land value differ greatly across space. And then if there's a market, if you allow them to exchange immediately, you see the predictable optimal. Everybody can benefit from the exchange of the quarter, the permit. But the idea is not new. If you look at the US, US have the emission permit trading. If you're talking about the global warming, we now people talk about the carbon trading too. So different countries get different quarter, they can exchange uh, the unused quarters. This is a market instrument. But in China, they're, they're, uh, the, the, this kind of practice started from uh, province. In Zhejiang, they started even in the 90s. Um, the, uh, in some areas, uh, like in Wenzhou or near the capital city of Hangzhou in Zhejiang province, the land uh, quarter was used, a long time had been used. So the, like in the, for example, in Hangzhou, the city just purchased the land development rights of 3,000 mu uh, of lands at the price of 60,000 renminbi. That's in the early 2000. From Hainan city, it's a more remote area in Zhejiang province. That's huge windfall for Hainan. They use the money, they can level off, uh, level the, the uh, agricultural land, introduce uh, uh, irrigation facilities, and build road, improve the infrastructure in the remote uh, counties. On the other hand, Hangzhou gets the culture, they can convert more farmland for industry use, and the market value, the, the, the productivity from the, the land is much higher than alternative agriculture use. So on aggregate, the social welfare improved. And then after some years, Zhejiang wanted to treat with other provinces because within the uh, province, they, they don't find much opportunities. They, it's hard, harder to find more opportunities for trading. They want to trade with uh, Heilongjiang and even Guizhou, but they only tried one year. The central government called them stop because they challenge the authority of the central government. Uh, so I would say if there are any innovations, how about they just try with the neighbor province? There may be some huge room to improve just through this kind of market uh, instrument. A second case uh, is the residential land consolidation. This uh, case I found out when I did my own survey on rural industrial clusters in Zhejiang. In rural land, if you go to China, you see that the rural house scattered uh, all, all over. It takes a lot of uh, land. Uh, but in some uh, more developed areas, like in Zhejiang, many villages become industry clusters. They need land to build factories. They need land to build uh, dormitory for workers. But they don't have the quarter for industry land use. What they did is they taught with the farmers. Says, how about we build a new village, high-rise buildings, and move everybody to the high-rise building. We save the land from the residential use, and then build a, maybe an industry park, a marketplace, 
and every household can get some share from this. But if you, before, if you have one acre of land for your house, now you move to a high-rise building, you only need maybe 0.1 acre. For the savings of 0.9 acre, you can be converted as a share of the industry park or the market places. And then every year you earn the revenues from it. So this idea, definitely most villagers love it. So there was, and also the county government just closed eyes. Normally this is not legal, but the county government said, anyway, you don't, the overall, the land area is fixed. Uh, you, you don't increase, you, you don't uh, sacrifice the agricultural land. Uh, so they just gave you a green light. So if you go to this kind of cluster, rural clusters, this is a very common practice. They don't need to report to the upper level government. They just show our total land area has been fixed. Our agricultural land has been constant over time. But the, the reallocation among the residential land and the industrial land um, certainly uh, increase uh, these areas, uh, growth output values and the employment opportunities. i just show you a picture I took in my own survey. So if you look at the, uh, here, it's more like a townhouse or apartment buildings. These are all the new villages. Oh, okay. At the first floor, if you go inside, you see the, all the <laughs> workshops. They, they just like uh, hire some workers, do the, the ironing, the uh, shirt, sweaters, or weaving the, 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 the clothes, etc. And the workers, uh, you're, the first floor, second floor, you are the workshops, and the third floor, the workers uh, stay there, and the top floor, the, the landlords, the farmers. Uh, so the farmers become landlords, become shareholders of their local agglomerations, conglomerate. Uh, uh, so you see the, 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 this kind of innovations uh, in China all over. Another innovation uh, is, but uh, we will talk about the importance to improve farmers' income. Even you give farmers secure property rights, land rights, farmers may not get rich too, if the land size is too small. Look at the, uh, Japan as an example. Without the protection from the government, Japanese farmers will be extremely poor. The Japanese farm can survive mainly because of the protection from the government. The rice price in Japan is about 10 times of the international market price. So even you have uh, secure property rights, the land, small land size, we inherently, it's possible to, to, to make, uh, get rich at such a small, with such a, a small amount of land because the land fragmentation, less of scale of economy. So how do farmers overcome the constraints and how the farmers can link to the market. That's a big uh, challenge. But there are also many good practices in China. There are two models. One is the company plus farmers model. Um, there's a, one of the largest wholesale market, vegetable market in Shouguan, Shandong province, typically adopt this model. What they do is the, their, uh, the com companies come in, they rent land, from farmers by paying a certain uh, shares because the farmer can use their land at the share of the company. 
and the worker has the option to either work uh, for the company as a uh, earn wage uh, or work elsewhere. So they have the option. It's a big mod, uh, success. Now that you go to Shogun, the whole county are producing vegetables. It's all like, more like all coordinated by invisible plants, despite the fact that the land size is very small. But somehow they overcome the coordination failures to all produce vegetables. And they create a market. The traders come in, they can purchase it, and the processing sector come in, increase value added of the vegetable production. The farm's income are increased as a result. So there's the model. Um, the second model, recently there, the supermarkets have become, uh, this is my last slide, become a big pheno phenomenon. Uh, the, after the consumers get rich, consumers want to get no, uh, high, uh, high quality, uh, safer food. They want to know the origins of the, the products. So there's a strong incentive for supermarkets come to villages to work with the uh, rural uh, producer cooperatives to directly order uh, organic food from uh, farmers. But this is very important to see that the, the farmers must organize. But otherwise, the supermarket, it's impossible for the supermarket to talk to hundreds of farmers individually. They only want to talk to one or two representatives of the cooperatives. So by, through this kind of cooperatives, the land size also become more homogeneous, oh, uh, the production become more homogeneous. The whole village just produce uh, one type of uh, product. And the supermarket can just come here, uh, purchase the product, put the label, uh, and also they can mark the origin of the production uh, uh, in, in the supermarket. So consumers also know that the, the uh, agricultural products are safe. So you see there, the, the rural development needs a lot of innovations. Many of the innovations are bottom-up. Uh, so I, I totally agree with you on uh, your talk. The land grabbing is a big issue, so I don't have time to talk about this. Uh, I think this deserves definitely more research on this. But there are many reasons for land grabbing. A lack of secure land rights is only one of them. I can list many of them, at least four. So I have the, one is... Uh, the land banking become a, uh, it's a big uh, uh, issue in China. Because local government rely on bank to finance the local revenues. Because China is a very decentralized uh, system, financially speaking. So the local government get most of their local revenues from land. So they have strong incentive to convert land from agriculture to uh, non-farm use. Immediately, they increase their market value, and, and they get more rent uh, revenue out of it. Secondly, local officials' evaluation are based on the local GDP growth. In order to promote the GDP growth, local officials want to attract more investment, investors, uh, in particular in the uh, industry sector. In order to attract investors, they usually offer cheap land, even free land, to multinationals. But how can they get free land? They must Basically, they just employed farmers because farmers don't have uh, much bargaining power. So if you look at the, the, some figures, uh, local revenues, uh, 
land revenues and uh, economic development level, you see they are totally positively correlated to each other. So land banking uh, is very, very uh, big, a big feature of China's uh, public finance system. So without changing the land sharing mechanism, I, I think it would be very difficult uh, to overcome the land grabbing issues, or even we pass new laws, uh, et cetera, because who implement laws is the local government. If they don't have incentive to implement, it would be hard, very hard to pass whatever good laws are written on the paper. So uh, this, uh, the land grabbing pose big challenges. I would say also maybe uh, create opportunities. If you look at the history, many big reforms come after crisis, come after uh, big challenges. Uh, you look at the UK, the franchise was extended only after the Paris Revolution. And if you can look at the US, the civil rights movement, and after that, uh, the black had, uh, were able to vote, etc. You see a lot of this kind of uh, phenomenon. Something, they take time to solve the issues. There's no easy solution just to change a law to, 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 re, uh, to solve the problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. I don't know if you, either of you want to comment on, provide short comments on that, or shall we just uh, take questions from the audience? I might say a couple of things. I think we're in broad agreement on many, perhaps most issues, but I, I do think one thing that has to be kept in mind in terms of the transfers and transactions that occur, and that's, that's the, the principle that lawyers might sometimes refer to as, uh, f as uh, free, prior, and informed consent on the part of those who are giving up their land rights for one uh, purpose or another. I, I wonder, for example, looking behind the immediate facts when uh, there was the purchase you referred to from Hainang City of uh, 3,000 mu at 60,000 RMB per mu. A mu is a fifteenth of a hectare or a sixth of an acre. Uh, pretty good price, uh, it would seem, in comparative terms. But where did Hainang City get the land that it was then transferring for 60,000 mu, uh, 60,000 RMB? Per move. Was it acquired involuntarily from farmers at 4,000 RMB per move? I don't know what the situation there was specifically, but we know from our survey that there's a high proportion of cases in which that's the pattern that occurs. The local city or government or cadre acquire land for a low price uh, basically involuntarily from farmers uh, and then the city or authority turns around and sells to a developer uh, at, at a much higher price. Uh, another basic point, and I probably could spend a two-day conference on this, but uh, the World Bank has just published a very interesting book that deals with issues of, of scale farming, so-called, and, uh, and productivity, and, and reiterates what we certainly have found in the global data, and that is, in general, 
small farms are more efficient, more productive per 100 square meters than bigger farms are. And the same, I think, is true in China. And sometimes what lies behind seeming productivity of big farms is that they get a tremendous break from local authorities and from banks in terms of low interest loans that they may not even be required to repay uh, in terms of uh, uh, a variety of subsidies. Often free machinery is given. So you're, you're really comparing apples uh, and oranges. And still, one, one final point I'll make uh, is in terms of the stock share system that you referred to where farmers give up their land to a company and they receive shares back in that company. One basic question, of course, is it voluntary and is it informed? Or, or is their land basically being confiscated? But another one, even if it seems voluntary and informed, what we've found in looking at some of these stock share uh, systems out in the countryside is that the, 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 the farmers may be shareholders but they have no real shareholders' rights. They have no real effective right to appoint the directors, to find out what the company's finances are, to understand what the profits are. After spending a good deal of time trying to unsnarl the data, we found, for example, in one well-publicized situation had gotten a lot of favorable publicity, but it turned out that the farmers were only getting about 10% of the provided the main asset, the land, they were getting about 10% of the profit, but they hadn't a clue as to it, and they, they didn't have any idea how to find out what their share was. So it really is important, and I think, to look behind many of, of these initially attractive-seeming arrangements, recognizing that there's an awful lot of greed, corruption, and cupidity on the part of local officials and local cadre. Okay, thanks. We have time for questions. If you have a question, please raise your hand and uh, wait for the microphone and identify yourself in the back there. Hi, Clayton Schaefer with Global Land. Uh, how much of the uh, correlation between high incomes and investment and the acquisition of land documents, would you say is a signal of the motivation of the people who are going out and getting these documents? And how much is a genuine contribution to their income simply from having the piece of paper? And I guess I have a second question is, um, you know, how do we short circuit this local corruption process? Because it seems like that's really the key problem here. And is a sort of third-party production of um, accurate land descriptions going to help? I mean, is there any way we can get involved from a civil society perspective? Um, I'll start with your final question, actually. Uh, China has recently started, we call it a land registration pilot project. Uh, Landasa has been involved in that. We have done three phases of a small-size pilot project in uh, Anhui province on land registration. Actually, several American companies and um, big ones, uh, mapping companies and uh, GIS software companies are involved in uh, mapping the land parcels using satellite images, uh, GPS, handheld devices, and so forth. So we're trying to compare the best cost-effective effect, model in China to registered 
about one billion parcel land parcel in China because it's hugely fragmented in rural China. Uh, that is still ongoing. Uh, back to the first two questions. Roy, do you want to go with the first two? I'm questions? not sure I heard the first one very well. Could you give him the microphone, please? I was asking about the correlation between document acquisition and this increase in incomes and investment that you see. Is that a signal of the motivation of the people who are going out and getting documents as well as making investments, or is it? Well, Kyung gave some, some of the numbers, and we'll have more of them when we, we publish the, the full results. But uh, and basically, we, we find there's a very substantial correlation between receiving documentation and especially receiving documentation that's in good form, for example, that has uh, a decent description of the land so that a farmer can really understand this is a document that relates to these parcels of land. There's quite a high correlation between that and making long-term investments, uh, very substantial long-term investments, made, by the way, mostly with farmers' own household savings and with sweat equity, their own labor. It's very hard for them to get bank credit. Uh, and I mean, the, the, the bottom line is that on a, on a global basis in China for 2009, the last full year before the mid-2010 survey, one can calculate that what, roughly 60 billion RMB, or about 12% of all rural incomes were traceable to the income from the investments that farmers had made uh, in their land, and mostly made when they had documents, and even more so made when they had documents that were in, in, in good form. Uh, and, and, and that, as they say, you ain't seen nothing yet, because for example, in Taiwan, in the decade after they carried out land reform, largely as a result of farmers investing in their land and, and diversifying into higher value production, you had a 150% increase in farm incomes, and also in grain crops alone, a 60% increase in grain crop production on very small farms. Uh, we've done field work in Taiwan on several occasions, and it's interesting to see very small farmers who, yes, indeed, do have a Buick parked, uh, parked in the driveway and have a nicer stereo and a nicer television than I do, and, and really a nicer house than I do. So uh, it's, it's pretty impressive what you can do on a very small farm. I, I believe the second question about uh, corruption, local level. I guess Mr. John will add something here. But I want to say something here. Because corruption is really, in a way, in China, is a political issue, but also it relates to a lot of institu institutional issues we just mentioned today about the rule of law, the, uh, the role of the civil society, the role of the news media. Also, there are a lot of um, international players as well in this regard. Uh, for example, the recent uh, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization uh, is developing a voluntary guideline on land governance and administration. It's developed with several international organizations, including our input as well. It deals with a lot of corruptive issues that within the land administration, because this is really central to the security of 
property rights to be given to the people. I think also Mr. John mentioned the reform of the rural finance system where the local authorities are relying so much on selling land as their local uh, revenues. That system needs to be reformed before they have greater incentives to respect uh, people's uh, property rights. Thanks, other questions? One right up in front here. My name is Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. Uh, who funded your study, by the way, and is the um, the government or the central government of China, are they on board uh, recognizing your study and your results? Otherwise, you'd have another Tiananmen Square. <laughs> I'll answer that because I'm the one kind of uh, doing all the work there. Um, uh, our funding, uh, Landesa is a nonprofit organization. We, I think, two thirds of our funding come from foundations in the United States, and one third about individual corporate, uh, corporate donations. So we have sometimes we have yearmark donations to our China projects, but most of the time it's because general operation fund we could use for different field research projects. Um, the the results actually has been converted uh, conveyed to the central leadership. Uh, Landesa has been involved in China on land rights since 1987. Uh, it, it is uh, really a unique access we have to the central leadership uh, because of we are not we are trying to play low profile. We don't advertise too uh, too much in China. We want to influence policy and legal making, but not to portrayed us as some foreign NGOs that are doing political changes in China, and that's one key. Uh, for example, in January, uh, for the first time, we, uh, when we had the results, we briefed the State Council senior leaders, one of the top agricultural advisors to the Premier Wen Jiabao. We briefed uh, Minister of Agriculture, Minister of Land Resources, uh, and it's also the Chinese report of the Civil Report is published by China Academy of Social Sciences in February. So it has received a lot of attention, both within the policy circle as well, the academic circle in China. How receptive is the government to your recommendations? Um, well, we, we definitely have champions uh, in, within the Chinese government that uh, listens to us. Actually, today, this morning, I got an email from China as well. They want more policy memos from us on land taking slot. Because recently, about a week ago, the Minister of Land Resources just recently announced that the revision of the land taking slot will be on their official agenda. They're trying to figure out a timetable to complete that in a relatively short time. So they want to learn some comparative experiences as well as best in practices across the globe. And we have been, um, within selected ministries, we have a lot of uh, people that listen to us. That, that's what I can say there. Okay. The question in the back there. Question right there, please. Hello, Dan Pearson from the US International Trade Commission. Following up on what you've just been saying, Mr. Chu, can you give some sense of how much importance the central government may be placing on land tenure issues as compared to the other challenges they see in agriculture, shortage of water, cold storage issues, all, all the many others? Is this a priority for the central government, or are they content for the moment with the land tenure system and inclined more to focus on the other challenges? All right, I'm going to monopolize this conversation here. Um, 
I think he's one. Okay. The you can ignore that. We're having some construction in the building uh, right now. So. Uh, it's, I would say the land tenure issue is definitely has not caused fire alarms within the central leadership. <laughs> uh, some of aspects of that, for example, land takings, as mentioned by my and also Mr. John's presentation, that's a really controversial and has caused a lot of protests and unrest. Uh, but for other parts of the land tenure, for example, extending the 30-year rights to a more longer term, a more secure term, I don't think that's high on the agenda anymore. Uh, every year uh, since the past, I believe, four years now, uh, in January, the central leadership issues a called a central number one document that will focus on rural development issues. Uh, in this year, it focuses on irrigation issues. That's the water issue. And last year, and every year, land issue will be mentioned, but not as a high priority. So it really depends. But as I said, it depends on what topics of the land tenure issue we're talking about. And, and one. We're not trying to censor you, actually. <laughs> this should stop. One, one way of looking at it is in terms of what results are obtained from the central government's uh, and measure, measure their interest in terms of what, what happens out in the countryside. One very interesting effect, we didn't have enough time to get into this additional detail, but one of the original purposes of the, of the land management law and the rural land contracting law and the property law was to get rid of so-called land readjustments when they first allowed the decollectivization, the breakup of the collectives uh, starting in 1979, and that happened very quickly from 79 to 84, uh, they added a kind of catch-22, which was, yes, you'll get individual parcels of land at the household level, uh, but, and at the individual level within the household, but, uh, as population of the village or of the individual household changes, local cadre will have the power to readjust the land. That is, they can take it back and redistribute it in entirely new allocations. And in fact, that we were first alerted to that in our field interviewing as far back as 87 and 88, and farmers were telling us consistently look, in the wake of the breakup of the collectives, we've made all the annual improvements we can make in our farming, but we cannot and will not make long-term investments or improvements as long as this readjustment process goes on. Uh, and to their credit, and because this has been a concern of the center, we find, and this is over the sequence of, of, of uh, surveys over time, there's been a steady, steady decline in readjustments, which are now nearly all illegal under the law, to the point where we no longer regard it as a serious problem. But there are new problems of insecurity that have come to the fore in terms of the takings problem and in terms of the so-called outside boss contracting problem. So those do need to be dealt with, but hopefully as the central government comes to understand the size and scope of these and impact of those problems, it will become as serious about 
eliminating or reducing those as it was about eliminating uh, the readjustment process. We have time for one or two more questions. Uh, we'll take one here to begin with. Thank you. Uh, Jack Crosby, uh, just a private citizen. A uh, couple of questions. When there's a land taking and then that land is sold to a developer for huge profits, do the local cadre keep that money for personal use? Uh, there's one question related to that is, if they are benefiting personally, what incentive do they have to help an individual uh, farmer get a contract or certificate for his land? Because I'm sure that the local cadre would have to be involved in that. Um, yeah, there there is a process. Under the current law, actually, there is a system set up that compensation for land is actually paid to collectives first. And then the collectives would distribute the compensation to affected farmers. So because we don't at least have democratic elections at the village level or a full accountability at the village level, so a lot of under-table things could happen, a lot of misuse of funds that has caused problems and resentment among the affected farmers. So the, the reform of the legal region as, as well as the practice on the, on the grassroots level would require not only the legal change but also systems how we monitor uh, and assess official performances and also ensure there's accountability on the ground. And one thing that makes it hard to track is, is often it's not, it seems just pocketed by the cadre. Uh, it's used by them for so-called village purposes. For example, ask farmers what happened the compensation that the cadres received, and often the answer is they ate it up. They banqueted night after night until they pretty much used it up. Or you'll often see a rather poor village, but in which the cadre at the administrative village level have a nice two-story brick administrative building with uh, air conditioning and heating uh, and a couple of new VWs parked outside. So it's not technically kept for their own direct benefit, but in fact it's used in a way that one would regard as, as diversion. By the way, there are legal solutions to many of these problems. One, for example, is to set up bank accounts in the names of the individual farmers and have compensation payment made directly into those accounts accessible only to the farmers. They've done this with the farm subsidies very successfully. Only the They're not paid to the cadre. They're paid directly to, to bank accounts in the designated names of the farmers, and that's worked very well. And we've consistently urged that they do the same thing with compensation payments in the case of takings. Okay, I see two hands. Why don't we collect these last two questions and then uh, an answer starting in the back there, please, and then there. Uh, my name is Louisa Zhang, Program Officer for East Asia for the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, I have two questions for the general panel. Uh, one is that uh, in order for the local funding uh, mechanism to work, um, the central government has to be willing to uh, give up more revenue. Uh, where do you think are the political forces that would make that happen? Um, second question is that there's been so many immolation connections, uh, uh, immolation protest cases in connection with land taking um, that netizens are complaining of fatigue. 
Um, and at the same time, activists and lawyers who try to do um, rights-based work uh, in connection with land seizures have been um, detained uh, and dealt with in various ways. And then finally, local officials that are connected to such immolations, um, according to a reformist press, uh, often are just transferred and in some cases even promoted um, after the, uh, you know, the fallout blows over. So um, in view of that, uh, how does the Chinese government plan to deal with the loss of political uh, credibility that results? Thank you. Let's take a question here and then uh, the answers, please. This question, Francis Johnson, Strategic Planning Initiatives. This is somewhat an add-on to the questions we were just hearing. What um, influence or powers do farmers themselves have when they have a difference of opinion with their, say, local administrators, what risks are they willing to take? We've heard immolation as one uh, to acquire a change in how matters are run. And is uh, this kind of uh, <clears throat> grassroots uh, challenge rather common um, in in various provinces or, or uh, not particularly widespread? Sure. I think Ms. John, you should answer the first question about local finance. You should be perfect for that. Uh, I think it would be a very difficult question. Uh, I don't see central government have any incentive to give a larger share avenues to local government. And the local officials, uh, because they, for them, they want to get promoted. So they have to listen to the central government. So I, I would say it would be very difficult to change the, uh, the revenue sharing formula in the short time. So I, I think that's very difficult. I haven't seen any good solutions yet. Also, I want to talk a little bit on the last question related to the power of farmers. Um, the, the only thing they can do is use their uh, by foot. You can see wherever their land grabbed, they go to the upper level, they call the petition. They can choose the timing. Uh, usually, at any big uh, event, like a national holiday, Olympic Games, uh, the petition is more useful than other time because you get more focus, more attentions. Uh, so if the farmer travels there, sitting uh, in front of the guard buildings before the uh, national holiday, immediately they will uh, the local uh, the policeman even uh, in Beijing they even call the uh, police from the lo your local area to come over to pick up to to pay me cover your hotels and promise to solve your problem. So you can use this kind of threat or some uh, to get some compensations. Uh, in some cases, uh, the this problem is solved, but because there are more and more people come to Beijing for a petition, this create a huge pressures for the central government. I think the central government realize that. Uh, the, the social unrest from the land takings uh, is, a, is a volcano underneath them. So by someday, then you think about how to address the land rights issues. I, I would say most of the, uh, the, the land reform will be resolved from some kind of crisis. Uh, you, you look at the media reports, some people burn themselves and jump from the buildings be, uh, when the uh, developer came in to demolish their house and get all the media attention. 
I think many cases the problem uh, was solved because the local officials uh, don't want to have this kind of big uh, social unrest. Under their evaluation criteria, no major social unrest is the most one of the most important uh, indicator. This uh, yes, uh, no question. If there are any big uh, social unrest, you, you lost your uh, promotion opportunities. So farmers know this, so they game that. They try to get more attention, try to find the best timing to, to uh, voice their concerns. So over time, I think they, we need more, uh, more legal reforms to protect them. But right now, they use this kind of uh, uh, means to, to do it. I want to jump in here. Uh, before we started the presentation, Ian and uh, we just had a conversation about what the Communist Party did in the 1940s and 1950s, why they came into power, why they won mainland China. The, one of the main reasons they did a really fundamental, thorough land reform that gave full private ownership land rights to farmers. That's how they won the support of the peasantry. Uh, right now, it's the opposite. We are looking at a situation where farmers' land rights being not only being undermined but constantly taken away. That means their basic livelihood. So when those protests and unrest continues and escalates, I think the leadership will have to realize this is needs some fundamental drastic solution. Uh, regarding the, uh, just complement what Mr. John had said about uh, what farmers could do here. Our research and survey actually has data about when affected farmers found their compensation is unsatisfactory, what they do. There's only a very small minority of people actually uh, did something because there's something useful. Only 6% demanded a public hearing. 11% participated in a public hearing. 10% filed a grievances with the government. Only 2.5% seek advice from lawyers or legal aid. And then 1.8% of all the affected farmers that are not satisfied with compensation, 1.8% file a lawsuit in court. That means how ineffective the current systems are. Well, the only thing I might uh, add is that, uh, no, I think actually. Okay. Okay. Thanks very much. We've run out of time. I want to thank uh, our speakers today.